This is Man's Search for Medicine with your hosts, Brandon Smith and Zach Pope. This podcast is the result of our desire to change the standard of care for chronic disease and to make wellness and optimal health the new norm. We're seeking out the health knowledge we haven't learned in medical school, and we're connecting with innovators and thought leaders needed to drive this change. Through this learning process, we hope to excite doctors, empower patients, and challenge dogma, all while bringing humility and curiosity to the art and science of medicine. I'm sitting here today with Dr. Joe Kavidar. He's recognized as a global leader and expert in digital and connected health. He's a board-certified dermatologist who continues to care for patients at Massachusetts General Hospital after 35 years, and he's a professor of dermatology at Harvard Medical School. After finishing residency and fellowship at MGH, he was an early innovator in teledermatology back when they just had one-megapixel cameras, and he quickly spearheaded the telehealth movement. In 1995, he helped create what soon became Partners Connected Health, affiliated with Harvard Medical School, Brigham and Women's, and MGH. And through his leadership as director and vice president over the last two decades, they've paved the way for leveraging personal health tech, managing chronic conditions, and improving patient engagement and clinical outcomes. But that's just a start. He's authored over 100 publications. He's an editor uh, for Nature's partner journal, Digital Medicine. Uh, He's just been reelected as the president of the American Telemedicine Association. Dr. Kavidar is the co-chair of the American Medical Association's Digital Medicine Payment Advisory Group and a consultant and an advisor for multiple venture and med tech companies. But he didn't stop there. As the author of Sea Health blog, host of the Well Connected podcast, and speaker at multiple TEDx events, he has separated himself as someone committed to changing the status quo, not just hypothesizing about how to change it. He solidified a community of collaborative innovators as program chair for the Connected Health Conference, which is where we met. And in all of his free time, he has also authored two books, The Internet of Healthy Things, and most recently, The New Mobile Age, How Technology Will Extend the Health Span and Optimize the Lifespan. Dr. Kavidar, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be with you, Zach. Thanks for such a kind introduction. Of course. Um, we were talking before kind of about uh, a shared interest in wine, and I, and I think we also have a shared interest in this, this word that you've used a lot called health span. Health span. And um, as I've typed the word health span, I noticed that it still gets a little squiggly line under it. Did you notice that as well mm-hmm. when you were writing your book? Yeah. I think that's kind of telling of, of... Where we are. Yeah, ex- yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the stories that really stood out to me about your journey was this, this time where you were you know, um, a practicing dermatologist... And you kind of noticed that there was this opportunity with telemedicine and you didn't quite pivot, but you took that, you took that on as an extra kind of uh, thing uh, that you were doing. And that really focused around chronic disease management, it sounded like. Is that, is that correct? Well, in the beginning, once, once I had the uh, epiphany and when I had this insight, I was studying the uh, applicability of digital imaging as a diagnostic tool in dermatology, as you alluded to in the intro. And it was early days and the and the digital cameras were were uh, pretty primitive uh, but I ha- I had a, an insight one day that gosh if we were able to uh, relieve ourselves of the restriction that you to get healthcare done you have to be in the same room at the same time with a person that we could do a lot of really interesting things and I was 
to be honest with you, more motivated by efficiency than any other value proposition, the other main one being access, mm -hmm. of course. So with that in mind, um, I looked around me and it was, it was still pretty early days. There were a handful of people. The first uh, ATA meeting, you mentioned ATA, the first ATA meeting probably had 50 people at it in 1993, I think. So it was early days. And um, I felt like if we were going to make a real uh, difference, that we would have to go beyond dermatology. Um, and, and as much as I love my field, and, and you're right, I still practice and I enjoy it very, very much, it is in the grand scheme of healthcare cost a tail, uh, a flea on the tail of the dog. So I felt like if I was going to get people's attention on this new care model that I was so passionate about, that we had to go beyond derm. And we chose chronic illness management because, again, of that interest in efficiency. Uh, which was the idea that if you monitored people in their home that and didn't bring them into the high-cost part of the healthcare system, that you could render a uh, care that was of lower cost and equally high value, maybe even higher value. So um, you, you also talked about how um, this was kind of an unconventional path for the, for the kind of average uh, physician oh at an yes. academic center. And you, always, you kind of talked about almost... Uh, like seeming crazy or like you were doing something really off the beaten path. And, I, and that really resonates with me because I feel like I'm trying to do something very similar and disrupting the status quo. And so I'm, I'm curious, what like what was some of the either external kind of criticism or kind of internal self-talk as you were deciding whether this was something you wanted to really invest in? You know, that's uh, it's so I'll, I'll try to be succinct, but that really is a, a really interesting uh, set of questions. One thing I'll say is that part of my core being is that I'm optimistic. Um, and so I was never particularly daunted by the fact that people didn't really believe that this was a good idea. Uh, to me, it was just completely crystal clear. And so uh, I, and I did think uh, the other part of the optimism was thinking we'd get there quicker than we have. And, and we're clearly not still not there, but we're so much farther along than we were 25 years ago. Uh, so that was one. The second was that I had a sort of naivete, and, and I grew up uh, in Vermont in a very sort of simple household. My mom and dad were just uh, salt-of-the-earth folks, but simple, both high school educated. There wasn't a whole lot of um, uh, complexity in our home. And so I went into the business world early on in this journey because it immediately started overlapping with the business world. And People there, of course, deal in nuance all the time, right? So someone chooses to meet you or not. Someone chooses to uh, say yes or not. And to me, if I was given the chance to meet with someone, that was a win. And so I would just keep coming back, even though when they showed me the door, they were trying to be, uh, uh, they were trying to be polite and show me the door. I didn't get it, so I would keep coming back. <laughs> And I think that served me well in the beginning because uh, mm. I, I, those two traits helped me get through those first few years when I think others might have abandoned the whole thing. Um, so that that's one aspect to it. I think the other was, as I alluded to, for me, this was just crystal clear. There was just no doubt about that this was going to be important. Again, I'll, I'll say one more time, I, I don't uh, know if I knew it was going to take 25 plus years how enthusiastic I would have been, but it just felt right. 
I think the other thing that I, I've talked about, I mentioned the first meeting of ATA a minute ago, and, and I've talked as I've entered, as you point out, my second tour of duty there, 15 years after I was president initially, the world's a very different place. And I've mm. spent some of my time talking with the current folks there about the difference in the beginning. And one of the phrases I often use to describe those early days is you meet with people because you're all a bunch of misfits hmm. and you you have the same kind of idea about yeah. how the world's going to change, but other people don't seem to get that. And so that's very different than when you have a robust uh, marketplace with, with vendors and, and suppliers and buyers and which is how telehealth is now. Hmm. So, uh, I think in the early days, you have to have some pride that you are thinking ahead and you're going to be right. And that can help move you along and buffet you in those early times, even when really smart people say, I'm not buying it. I don't think so. Um, it's, it's a little bit of an overstatement to say that people thought I went off the deep end. One of the reasons that I've stayed here in my whole career at uh, MGH partners at Harvard Medical School is because people do value innovation around here and they will give you a lot of rope mm -hmm. to hang yourself uh, in that space of innovation. So it's true, but I also think because it wasn't basic science, which is the, the coin of the realm around here. Especially for it, dermatology, it, probably. Just just everywhere, I think. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't like I was out getting NIH grants. There's a very well-worn road to becoming a professor, a department chair, a dean, and it wasn't any of that. Uh, I think people thought that that was uh, probably uh, ill-conceived on my part, but again, for me it was, I also think that the last thing I'll say on that, uh, I, I was trying to be succinct, uh, <laughs> is that this idea that you're in, you have one foot in academia and one foot in commercial was always of interest to me. And that really was, it's always been that way and still is. You alluded to that in, in your intro. I spend about a day a week on boards or helping any anything from private equity to investment banking to VCs to startups to Fortune 500 companies in, in this space. And that I find very, not only gratifying, but also helps me keep my perspective broad. Um, so it's a fulfilling job. Yeah, that was something I wanted to ask you about was I noticed, you know, as I kind of dove into telehealth and where we are, it is such an all-inclusive field. It touches on so many different disciplines. Uh, and in medicine, at least I certainly feel a, a kind of um, push for more and more specialization, more and more niche, more and more, you know, narrow-minded. And you were kind of alluding to doing things to make sure that you kept that broad perspective you were hearing from multiple people so that's been intentional to help mm -hmm. to help you kind of navigate this uh this really uh integrated space with uh without kind of a you know narrow mindset yeah i think it, it's true i i do think um another thing that's usually helpful to me is humility um not always sometimes mm -hmm. i've been told i should be a little more you know, toot my own horn a little bit more. But um, humility leads to curiosity, and curiosity leads to learning. And mm. so that's a pretty good um, methodology that I've used. So uh, I often find myself um, 
and and I, I remember I, I learned this from um, one of my mentors are, was John Parrish, who was my department chair when this whole thing got started. And uh, one of his staff, I remember, said to me, John will meet anyone, and we all think he's wasting his time, but he tells us that he's learning from every meeting. And that's how I try to approach meeting with people. It, uh, inevitably, there's, there's not enough time in the day, and you have to turn some people down. But I listen to startups. I listen to entrepreneurs. I listen to people getting into the field. Sometimes I end up helping them, which is gratifying, and, and that's, again, I think part of uh, been my success. But, but um, a lot of times I'm just learning from, from their insights too. So, yes, I think keeping a broad perspective is important. Remember, this is a care model. It's not a specialty. Hmm. It's just a different way of providing care. And so um, broadening the, the aperture, I thought, early on was pretty important. People will still come back to me and I'll meet people uh, for the first time and they'll start talking teledermatology and I have to just say, I uh, love that field and, and uh, have, have been deeply invested in it, but it's not been the majority of my time at all. It's been a small, always been a small piece of my life. Yeah. Um, so that is a, a, a slightly different view, I think. Definitely. Um, so kind of talking about uh, where you're coming from, uh, being in dermatology, realizing that you want to improve not just efficiency, but access. Um, and then you kind of got into the business side of things. And it looks like uh, I read a couple places that um, you actually were, you've, you actually ended up being like a decade ahead of where things were. At least. And yeah. <laughs> and, um, and that a lot of people in this space are almost too futuristic and, they, and they're too kind of projecting into the future what, what they expect will happen and not present enough, not. Um, not really thinking about how this gets implemented now, mm-hmm. especially in our um, in our older population, yeah. like you alluded to in your book. Um, and so I'm curious, how uh, what's your approach to timing and, and getting a pulse on where we're at? Wow, that's a wonderful question. So I appreciate it very much, and and I don't think my answer is going to be particularly. Uh, uh, enlightening I, I I think first of all again I've been consistently farther ahead than I thought uh, I would always say I try to be five years ahead of where the market is and usually it ends up being more like 10 okay um, and that's probably the optimist coming back right um, and as I get older uh, uh, one of the fears I have because you you do inevitably with with uh, decades of experience you do see patterns emerge um, so one of the things I try very hard to do is not go to the meeting and be the one who says we can't do that because we tried it and it failed. Because then it, things can change. People change, markets change, conditions change, technologies change. So just because it failed before doesn't mean it will again. Mm. But I think what you try to do is is uh, just say, well, these are the lessons learned from before so that at least we don't make the same mistakes we made before which is a different way of saying the same thing. So um, to try to stay in that zone of five to 10 years, there's the reality of how medicine moves. And it's just a reality that it's uh, in this country, it's whatever it is now, three something trillion dollar, three point something trillion, I've lost track. It's an enormous, enormous Titanic and uh, can't change it overnight. Um, 
remember a lot of what we do in digital health, uh, connected health, telehealth is is uh, um, try to affect technologies that will that will end up being more efficient. And so, one of the sayings that I often remind myself of is that in healthcare, a dollar saved is usually a dollar someone's income lost. And that individual usually gets upset with you for that. And that's part of why it takes such a, it's just so challenging to move this field. And so when I would look at, say, one of the things that we we were just we've been talking about lately is value-based care mo- uh, reimbursement models, right. and the reason is because they're quite telehealth friendly. Um, and so when we started talking in the late part of the last decade, two thousand seven, eight, nine, about value-based is coming, it's going to be different than capitation. We're going to be at risk, but it'll be. It's been ten years, and we haven't moved the needle much on that. Yeah. Right. No. A- for a- sure. a- a- as uh, and, and you'd have Medicare coming out with statements. I think it was 2017. They said, oh, by 2019, we're going to have 50% of our payments be value-based. And they just, we haven't made the mark on any of that stuff. So, and I, I just use that as an example of when you ask about timing. So if, if you could say, well, let's, let's take, for instance, something that I've been working on recently in reimbursement codes. And uh, when I started that journey, it's been three years that I've co-chaired this AMA committee. And we, one of the first things we said in uh, 20, I guess, 17 when we started uh, was we're going to do some codes for remote monitoring reimbursement. So it takes time to craft them. It takes time to get them through CPT. It takes time to get them valued for Medicare to adopt them. And then Medicare implements them. That all takes a couple years. And then so January of 2019... Medicare brought in these new codes, and almost nothing's happened. The industry looks at them, and people are curious, and then they get worried, and then the lawyers come in and advise them of all the risks, and and the other payers aren't paying yet. So I've started to look at other codes as a set of codes for chronic care management that were introduced about four or five years ago, and their growth, and I start using that as a metric. Well, if these are not that different than that. So probably if we put the codes out in 2019, they'll get traction about 24, 2025. Again, that may or may not be accurate, but those are some of the ways you start to do timing. You start to look at other things that, or the other thing I've often done that I, I think is a lot of fun. I wish more people did. This was look at what other industries are doing. Um, and, and how we can learn from them. One of the re- retail is an industry I pay a lot of attention to because uh, they've figured out how to change behavior and we, that's yeah. something we need to do in healthcare. And so, you've alluded to Uber and Lyft too as, you know, de- kind of decentralized um, healthcare yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, for kind of the sake of the listener, I would be interested in kind of going through um, some a few of the things from your most recent book uh, talking about you create this sense of urgency for why we really don't have the time to be really fiddling don't. around with we this. Really don't. Uh, and you give a couple of um, present day solutions kind of, and 
a, a few hypotheses about where we're going. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you mind sharing a little bit about? Yes, I think so. I, I think what you're referring to is this. We back to this idea of health span, right? That uh, I mean, there's all kinds of interesting stats, but but one I think that's quite poignant here is that next year, 2020, for the first time in history, we'll have more people over 65 than under five, and that dichotomy widens, of course, over time. And by 2050, uh, twice as many people on the planet will be over 65 compared to under five. And, and unless something dramatic happens, there's always a wild card that we cure cancer or something like that. But in, until and if something like that happens, those people are going to need more healthcare touches. They just do. Things happen. Joints wear out. Hmm. Arteries wear out. Lungs, you know, all this kind of stuff. It just, we get older and things need more attention. And so I often make the argument that we're r- literally running out of young people to take care of old people. If, if the, as, as I alluded to before, if the only thing we offer you is you come and visit, you the patient or consumer come and visit a provider in a physical space and you do something together and that's healthcare, then we're going to run out right. of people. I also would just say that for the, for the fun of it, uh, because this is, again, a minority view, but I'll, I'll espouse it, which is that a lot of that phenomenon is already happening, and that, to me, is the root of burnout. Mm. Can you see more on that? Well, I, again, I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in the minority here, but I, I just know how I feel when I'm in my practice and I'm running behind. I don't like it. I don't like keeping patients waiting. I don't like feeling that pressure. And primary care is so much more overwhelming than what I do. Like, at least I get to focus on one organ system. And, you know, when you come in primary care, these people have 10 problems. They need their vaccines. They need, you know, they need to be told about cholesterol. They need to be told about diet. They're overweight. They were overweight last time. And you told them they should probably lose weight. And it just, it's got to be dragging people down. Not, of course, to mention the electronic health record, which I know is a big part of it as well, and I don't mean to to minimize that. Mm -hmm. But I think just the psychology of having all this chronic illness in your office all the time and not being able to affect it because you don't have the time, it's got to weigh on people. And it's the don't have the time part that's related to this phenomenon that we're running out of provider time because we get more and more illness 70% 70% of our illness in the U.S. is lifestyle-related. So you've got this onslaught of chronic illness. It's diabetes, as you know, is, is epidemic, type 2 diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. And the primary care community is just drowning. Um, so I think if we were able to implement some of these, what I call one-to-many payment models, and that could be through... And by the way, I'm going to mention a bunch of technologies, none of which are yet mature. So this is the um, the, the part where we're we're looking ahead a few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but chatbots, yeah, uh, like Catalia is that one? Catalia, oh, uh, okay. that's a ro- that's an actual robot. But okay. chatbots, uh, uh, artificial intelligence solutions, in uh, other ways, uh, remote monitoring is is the one that is in mainstream now that is clearly doing this where you have a nurse call center monitoring hundreds of patients uh, with congestive heart failure um, it's a it's a and managing by exception we need more solutions like that and we need to get them in and as you said 
I feel like there's there's not enough urgency um, to do this. What we're doing, and it's I, I say this with with the most respect for my colleagues because when you've got a problem, everyone tries to solve it, and and so but we we're bringing in people to do for this is related to burnout. We're hiring people to do our laundry for us. We're hiring people to be coaches. We're hiring uh, scribes in the clinic mm -hmm. to type for us, and. I think that's not really getting at the root of the problem, which is we, we frankly need to change our care model. makes a lot of sense that if you just just follow the graph out, we're, we're going to be outnumbered. I'm curious, so kind of one of the kind of devil's advocate pieces that I've read mm -hmm. in response to the telehealth movement mm. is that this is is actually not a root cause solution mm -hmm. because the root cause solution would j just be to decrease the number of patients that need physicians mm -hmm. is what what would be your kind of response or how do you think about that as a as an answer to the mismatch instead of just saying oh we need to change the care model altogether well they're related uh so i i i gave i gave a talk uh, the other day to a group of informatics uh students over at the medical school um and and i use this uh progression a fair amount. So I start talking about virtual visits, which is not efficient at all. It's it's just breaking mm -hmm. the, uh, as, as my friend yesterday said, the tyranny of time. Mm. Uh, sorry, the tyranny of space. You're in a different space. Uh, but if you really want to be efficient, you have to do time and space independent, right? So the next one down is this, uh, this idea of e-consults that we do where we allow our primary care colleagues to package up a small nugget of question and send it through our electronic record to a specialist. And that's been quite popular um, in our, uh, at the MGH, I should say, maybe across partners. Um, in a couple of years of doing that, we've, uh, we, we estimate we've avoided about 26,000 specialist visits. Wow. Um, so that starts to sound efficient, right? Right. right. Uh, and then you get into things like remote monitoring, which I mentioned, and then after that, digital therapeutics and chatbots and whatnot. And the answer to the, the direct answer to the question is the same set of tools can be used to promote wellness and prevention. They don't have to be used to, to take care of sick people. Okay. But I also think uh, to sort of dismiss the, the need we have to take care of sick people is a little bit naive as well. Right. Because again, chronic illness keeps barreling down at us. And we don't have, as a, I would say this, is we don't as a society have a business model for wellness. Hmm. But really, I mean, it's sort of, we make a lame attempt at it in, in, the, uh, in the employer community. But we really don't have a business model for wellness. Yeah, and it seems, I mean, despite all this money being poured into the wellness industry, um, we're not making considerable uh, change at all. Yeah. And I have to imagine, um, and I'm, I'm guessing that um, just based on the people that came to the Connected Conference and kind of your, um, your background in psychology, that it seems like that's where you see there being this rate-limiting step is that we're not really leveraging... Um, behavior, change. behavior change and and motivation and kind of the potential addictiveness of technology that we can take advantage of. Yes, although I, I would hasten to add that I realize that's extremely complex. Uh, and the reason I, I think my take on the reason these things have failed to date is that the people have tried to 
to simplify them, to make them one size fits all or one size fits many. Um, and what motivates you and really gets you to be fit and lean and, and uh, healthy is maybe a different set of motivations than I have. Or if we had a third person in the room, that person mm -hmm. would have. And the wellness solutions that are on the market at best segment you on two or three or four variables. They don't really get to know you. And um, let's say behavior change is really hard. Yes, it is. And so to, to sort of um, say every, well, we're going to give everyone 20 bucks a month to, to, to adopt a healthy behavior or, or uh, uh, we're, we're, you know, some other simplified solution often gets you to 20 or 30% adherence, but not much more than that. And that's because one size just doesn't fit all. Yeah. I wanted to ask you um, questions about blind spots. So we kind of talked about the need to stay balanced in our perspectives. Uh, you also talked about, I really like uh, the innovator's dilemma about how um, the challenge we have is uh, when we when we reach out to the people who are kind of leaders in the field, they typically are the people who are charged with upholding the status quo, and so that we can't always mm -hmm. um, rely on their perspective. How how do you um, navigate this without necessarily needing the uh, the validation or justification of the thought leaders in this space? Well, I guess what I've done over the years when I when I engage with people in a conversation or listen to them or um, present to them and get their objections is I try to filter them through the lens of their self-interest. Um, and, you know, every now and then you run into someone who really does seem to want to do the right thing and they become a comrade and a, a soldier in the uh, same army that you're in. But um, I think disturbingly for me, so much of what you get when you when you talk to people is um, and self-interest is not just personal but it could be on behalf of the organization they represent right but uh, and it just permeates um, uh, we were talking yesterday uh, at the meeting I was at a company presented uh, who's in the physical therapy space doing remote physical therapy and and um, the, the, the lament of the CEO was that uh, it's at, hitting on all cylinders, better outcomes, lower cost of care, uh, the people that are on the program get better quicker, and they do it from home. And he said, we can't go get anywhere with it because physical therapists are worried we're taking business away from them. Hmm. So that's kind of the dilemma of telehealth or, or any of these efficiency tools, is that there's going to be someone who you're disrupting their livelihood and on the one hand it's totally understandable that they would be upset by that but what I would love to see is more people who are just accepting that they are employable and we, we can do it right whatever it is we can do it if we do the right thing maybe we can all find new work to do it's it's a little bit like the same uh, argument that gets made a little bit about AI taking jobs away and creating jobs. One story I really like uh, that, that illustrates that point is the story of the, automat uh, of the um, bank teller 
And um, when the automatic teller machine came in, I was uh, a teenager and, and uh, happened to be working at a bank and, and uh, as a high school job at the time. And it was terrifying to the bank people. Um, if you fast forward now 60 years or so, there are more bank tellers employed now. And the reason for that is that banks shrunk the branch size and put in more branches. So technologies can do odd things, you know, mm. and, and, and um, we, we, we really, I think, do ourselves a disservice by immediately being afraid uh, of the, of the uh, immediate turf battle and not looking at the big picture. In some ways, it's human nature, uh, but, but I, it would just be, I think, a breath of fresh air if people are a little more thoughtful about things before they, they hunker down and start doing their self-protection. Yeah, and it, it almost seems like if we can kind of agree on what the vision or goal is for healthcare, you know, the goal is to uh, take this chunk out of our chronic disease epidemic and, and you know, prevent more. To have people healthy. Have people, to, to have yeah. a better health span, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, that this discomfort of change might be a little bit easier to handle. Um, and the program that I'm working on for uh, medical students uh, called COPE. One of the things we're focusing on a lot is um, called ACT, um, mm-hmm. Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, which is all built around, yeah. um, you know, living in commitment to our values despite the pain that we might be having to go through to do that. Because oftentimes mm-hmm. pain is on the flip side of our values. Right. And I'm and I and I have to imagine that this would be a, kind of a helpful thought process for some of these, you know, physical therapists who feel like they are um, under assault. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because if we frame it in terms of this is what we have to do to be as a healthcare community congruent with our values of, of moving forward. Then I think that we can say, okay, you know, we're able to weather a little bit of the discomfort. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's all that there's a, uh, Elliot, I think it's Elliot Rogers. Everett Rogers, sorry, wrote a book called uh, The uh, Diffusion of Innovations. It's a classic. And uh, it's a big, thick book and, and somewhat hard to read, but it goes through all these different... Um, it's, it's like a forerunner to the innovator's dilemma. It goes through all these different scenarios about how people resist innovations because of self-interest. It's, it's human nature. Um, who, I mean, as I alluded to, kind of your one of the experts in this space, but who do you see yourself needing to reach across the aisle to or uh, learn more about in order to take this next big leap in um, connected health? Oh, boy. I mean, it's too numerous to count, right? I I learn every day from so many people. Uh, um, I mean, there's there's so many folks out there that are paving the way. I I hesitate to name names, to be honest with you. Yeah, just in, Um, we'll say, like, disciplines. Well, uh, for sure, genetics. Okay. Genomics and genetics. And uh, I think, again, I mentioned AI earlier, but that's going to be incredibly powerful. Um, those are, those are two examples, I think, of real, real game changers. Okay. What, um, just kind of a few rapid fire questions as we're finishing up. Yeah. Um, what, are you familiar with the 80, 20 principle? This yes. Idea? Okay. So what would you Pareto, say? right? Yes, exactly. Uh, what would you say are, what's the 80% for health? If and we we'll, and we'll limit you to three kind of pieces so the way i would just just so we got it framed right the uh-huh. way the way i would 
interpret that as what can I do with 20% to create 80%, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Correct. Okay. Uh, again, complicated, but, but, um, and, and also I would just add in that this is another theme from the new mobile age. We've, we've kind of done a lot of this. So we've done things like, uh, mammograms or screening, uh, colonoscopies, right? We, 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 we've, uh, we've gotten smoking down to 20% of the population, right? We've done a lot of things that are uh, allowing us to live longer, and that's why we need to do more with the health span. Um, I do think that if we could do a little bit better about how we present food to people, that that would go a long, long way. We... we uh, I don't eat at many restaurants anymore uh, for a number of reasons, but one of them is that they, they just give you too much food and it's not very healthy. It's all you know, pretty high in fat and salt. Um, just walking through the airport yesterday, I was again, I was in D.C. coming home. You see people chowing down on uh, Chick-fil-A and mm-hmm. Popeyes and big, thick burgers. and it's the, the, Some of the background on all this is that we have this as you know, uh, uh, fast brain and slow brain, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. yeah, you just get used to doing stuff a certain way and you don't think about it. So you're hungry, you go to McDonald's. So we have a whole lot we could do to just straighten that out. And if the choice is, we know this from other, uh, from the health, uh, sorry, the um, behavioral economists, that if you just put healthy choices in front of people, most of the time they'll choose that stuff. So to me, that would be a pretty good Pareto effort. Okay. Gotcha. Um, Maybe one more question. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So, so I'm curious what you feel like the unintended or you know unforeseeable consequences might be for this movement that we're making of increasing the reach of each physician by uh, adding asynchronous, um, you know. Uh, meetings and sure. stuff like this well if we don't get it right people will feel disenfranchised they'll feel like their health is being or their health care is being withheld from them not not increased and uh, if we do it right people feel more connected they'll feel better cared for and they'll feel like it's uh constantly following them around which is one of my personal goals health care shouldn't be episodic it should be a continuous function in your life and the variable there, I, I, again, I mentioned earlier that I like to uh, um, to use examples from retail, but uh, I won't name corporate names, but there's a certain uh, broadband provider that I use in my home, and when I try to call them for service, it's a terrible experience. <laughs> you get a robot on the phone, and you can't get beyond that robot. You can't get a person. You, 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 if you get in the queue for a person, it's a long, long, long wait. Um, it's unconscionable. Uh, contrast that to another company that um, makes shiny devices that a lot of us carry around in our pockets. Um, and if you call them for service, yes, you do get a robot initially. But based on what I don't know, because I don't know their formula, but in my own case, I almost always get shunted to a human being very quickly. Mm. And it's that, right, for putting technology in front of you, between you and the patient, we have to be mindful that the patient needs to feel cared for and looked after. They can't feel like they're being shunted to a meaningless chatbot that doesn't listen to them or something like that. And so I think that's our, our big uh, challenge is that we have to implement these tools, 
but we have to implement them in a way that always comes back to people feeling cared for. All right. That seems like a good place to wrap up. Yeah, it's been such a pleasure to chat with you, Zach. All right. Thank Thank you, you, Dr. Kavita. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and doesn't constitute medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the material of this podcast is at the user's own risk. Guests who speak on the podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. The content of this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice. Listeners should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any treatment of conditions.